This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's roundup. I gotta start out by thanking all of the new Patreon and Floatplane subscribers. You're all so awesome. I really appreciate you so much. And while we're only about a third of the way of covering the Google ads on the website, I took them down anyway. I just was really sick of hearing it from people about that. So hopefully we could continue to grow those support services. Hopefully I can get some other sponsors on, not in full page ads or covering ads like that, but some more tasteful ways of advertising. And I'm really just going to try my best to do this as long as I possibly can. I can't do it without you. So thank you all for your support. You're all just absolutely amazing. But you know, this is uh, the best job I've ever had. I got to help so many developers get products out. I got to help so many people get the products that they needed and stay away from the ones that they probably should. So I'm just happy to be here. I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. And when uh, when I can't do it anymore, there'll be a, a polite goodbye and we'll go from there. But as of now, I'm still okay. Just uh, still going to grow this thing. So anything you could do, including just spread the word, would be awesome. Uh, and if, you know, if not, that's fine too. Everything's going to come to an end at some point. But Hopefully not soon. So let's jump in and see what we got this week. First up, Lou from Lou's Retrosource just did a video showing you how to use the Mr. Laggy, the small little device designed by Wickerwaka that plugs into the snack port or the user I.O. port in the I.O. boards for the Mr. that allows you to turn your Mr. into a lag testing device. And I absolutely love this thing. It's only $12 and it allows for a bunch of different resolution combinations that you can't really get on any other lag testing device. Now, I would not tell you to go out and buy a Mr. just as a lag testing device. However, if you already own it, I think this is an awesome 12 bucks to spend your money on. You're able to test your current displays. You could test 120 hertz at 720p or lower. You could test some of the uh, other odd resolutions uh, like the ones for the Wonder Swans. That way you could test if your display is adding any more latency in those crazy modes. And I have a feeling that we're going to figure out some other ways to use this as well. So please, at the very least, check out Lou's video. It goes into detail on how this thing works and basically how lag testing devices work. But I have a feeling that um, a lot a lot of people are going to be buying this, and I have already have a few ideas of where we can go next with this. So Martin, Wickerwaka, prepare for some really annoying DMs in the future because I have a few ideas we could try. But definitely, at the very least, check out Lou's video because this one was cool, and it's good to see the Mr. being used for all sorts of crazy things. 
Next up, the software Excellent Kai has just posted an update that allows you to tether with a cell phone in order to connect for internet access, which is a really neat idea, and I just didn't consider direct integration with something like that would be possible. For anybody that's unaware, Excellent Kai is a piece of software that allows you to connect two devices as if they were on the same local area network. Plus it does a, a whole bunch of other things. But essentially I started using this back when it was very first released for the original Xbox. And it's been updated to be compatible with a ton of different things, including stuff like the Nintendo Switch and even other all of the other modern platforms. And I think this is a really great alternative to some of the paid services, because if you're just a casual user, you might not want to sign up for all of that stuff. If you're a Switch Online user, some of those games are really bad <laughs> online. So I imagine this might actually be uh, an improvement in some cases, not all. But I've been a big fan of the software for uh, a long, long time now. And I just wanted to mention it because I can't remember. It doesn't seem like we mention it that often on the podcast, which is sad because it's awesome. And I need to find more excuses to mention it. So that's what I'm going for today. I imagine not everybody's going to be using cell phone tethering with this, but I did want people to just you know, be reminded that this software is still out there, still being updated, and still freaking awesome. So uh, check out the main site and the change log if you want more info on this. But basically, it's just awesome to, to see this continue to, to work like that. And I think um, I'm going to talk to the, some of the excellent people and maybe even Rich uh, Rich Whitehouse, the creator of the big PMU emulator, and see if maybe we could integrate something like that, make Jaguar emulation, software emulation over the internet, even easier. So I don't know. We'll see. But Or maybe somebody's already worked on this and I'm just sounding like an idiot right now. It's fine. Happens at least once every podcast. The Japanese-only PlayStation 2 game Boko no Natsu Yasumi 2 is now playable in English thanks to an English translation patch that took 11 months of work and over 5,000 lines of dialogue translated. The game is a summer vacation life sim game, and it's kind of taken on a bit of a cult following after Tim, aka Action Button, did a whole six hour long deep dive video on it. So this is obviously something that's kind of neat and unique and weird and fun. And stuff like this, I think, really just is awesome that people outside of Japan get to experience it. Maybe you're the type of person that will grab your ISO, patch this thing, play it for 10 minutes and go, okay, neat. Or maybe you'll find a weird new game that you just get to sink into that you would have never gotten to before if it wasn't for an awesome translation team. So honestly, just as always, thank you to everyone who puts effort into translating these things. Sometimes they get passed over and a lot of people really take it for granted and I try not to. Even if I'm annoying about this on these weekly roundups, I just really want to make the point that all of these translations are a ton of hard work and without them, so many amazing game series just wouldn't be available to, to check out outside of Japan or even in other regions. So thank you very much to the team and check out Donald's post if you want more info. I just did a live stream and a write-up about a really awesome late 2000s TV from the company Brian Vega that was a reproduction of the 1960s version that they originally released. And that was a futuristic-looking TV from the 60s that kind of fits with a lot of the futuristic styled stuff from back then. But this one has a couple of really awesome 
late CRT era amenities that you would have never gotten back in the 60s, like an RGB SCART port, which of course could accept both NTSC and PAL signals because raw RGB doesn't conform to a color standard. And also it has an S-video and composite input as well as RF that is PAL only. Now, there's a couple of things about this that I thought was really worth highlighting. First and foremost, the model that I showed was able to work in worldwide power and also accepted both 50 and 60 hertz signals. I wanted to test this. Uh, you know, anybody that's kind of messed with PAL and NTSC 50, 60 hertz stuff probably knows that you normally just wouldn't get a signal at all if the TV wasn't compatible, but we're nerds and it's my job to demonstrate this stuff. So I ran the 240p test suites counter and counted that all 60 frames were absolutely being drawn. So this is a true multi-format from the 50, 60 PAL, uh, 50 to 60 Hertz multi-format, not 480p compatible, um, compatible TV, which is absolutely cool to play with because now you have this weird little, you know, 60s looking TV that you could put an RGB input. Now, since the SCART input can accept, uh, the RGB side of the SCART input could accept all the colors, I wasn't worried about that, but I also wanted to test PAL signals into the S-Video input. For that, I use Ivory from RetroCastle's absolutely awesome Mr. Case that has Mike Simone's circuit built right in. So with just a couple of changes in the INI file, I was able to send a PAL 60 signal to this TV, and it worked perfectly. I ran the 240p test suite again, because once again, nerds are supposed to question all of these things, even if we think we know the answers, and all 60 frames were displayed, the colors looked fine, and in fact, uh, it did work with NTSC, it was just black and white, because you wouldn't get the, you know, the correct color stuff in there. So I wanted to highlight this for a couple of reasons. First, I bought it a couple of years ago, I found it on uh, Craigslist in Jersey City, and I never had a chance to highlight it, mostly because I don't like to just highlight stuff I got on retro RGB. It's never been the point of this website um, and never will be the point. However, there was one pretty neat tidbit that I got that I felt was worth sharing with anybody that was interested in these. <clears throat> First, how to identify these, look for the SCART port. All the ones I found on eBay were actually ones from the 60s that only had an RF input. Uh, my buddy Ed was actually able to find one that was not this model, but it did have an RGB input, but it was only uh, 240 power, so you would need a step-up converter in order to use it. So if you're going to buy one on eBay, just check the pictures on this one. But the more important thing that I wanted to highlight is I actually emailed the company, Brian Vega, and I sent them the model number, the 902 FOIT BV1 Algal, and I just told them the truth. I found this TV. I love CRTs. I would love to use the RF and S-video inputs for NTSC. Can I do that? I didn't expect a response, or I expected the typical response when I email companies, and they're just like, who is this idiot? You know, no, you can't. And that is not what I got from this company. They sent me the manual, the service manual, the schematics, and told me that since normally the Algal TV is PAL, it could accept an NTSC signal. All you would have to do is just add an additional oscillator and then enable the NTSC mode in the service manual. So I think that means 
you don't really need to remove anything from this TV. You could just add a second oscillator and then just use the service manual to go between NTSC and PAL mode. So I really, that's kind of what pushed me to finally do this live stream. That, and I only had like an hour to kill, so I, I couldn't do any deep dives. But I wanted to finally get this info out, because if you're lucky enough to have one of these awesome little TVs, with what might not be the hardest mod, I haven't even really looked into it. I got a bug, Steve from RetroTech, of course, looking into that for me. Hopefully, he'll have time at some point. But if you find one of these, that means you'll have a 50 and 60 hertz TV that would work with NTSC and PAL over composite, S-Video, RGB, and RF, and would work in worldwide power. So that's a pretty awesome thing to have if you're able to find one of these. Now, once again, they're really hard to find. And these things were like $1,200 new in the late 2000s, so who knows how much they would go for now. But if you stumble across one or you already own it, uh, I'm very happy to get this info out there for everybody, and especially happy to host the manual and service manual for it. So... Um, if you're at all interested, you could check out the live stream. If not, I basically summarized absolutely everything that you would need to know in this. Uh, but I just wanted this info out here. So now when people search for this thing, you could easily get all of this documentation. So thanks to uh, Brian Vega for actually treating me like a fellow nerd and not like some moron emailing for info. Uh, that's, that was unexpected and very appreciated. And as always, thanks to everybody who hangs out in these live streams because they would not be fun without any of you. Tito from Macho Nacho Productions recently posted a very cool video about how to put a Raspberry Pi Compute Module 4 into a PSP to turn it into an emulation handheld. And this is a completely no-cut, fully reversible mod. I'll be honest, I still would have wanted to talk about this video anyway because it was a cool video and I liked the concept of it. But the fact that you could put this completely back to stock when you're done is what made this even cooler than it already was, and at least in my very strong opinion about this, because I absolutely see a scenario where somebody would have a compatible model PSP that they're kind of done playing with for now and would want to use it for something like this. But I absolutely see a time where maybe the CM4 is, you know, 10 years from now is way outdated and you just want to put this back to your original retro handheld. So the fact that that's a possibility is just the coolest part for me. But Tito also highlighted a couple of other things like the upgraded screen that you get to use, um, how the image, the software image that was designed for this really does make it kind of a plug and play thing. You don't have to sit there and map all your controls, which anybody that's ever seen any of my Raspberry Pi gaming live streams, I break them every time, not physically, like software wise, because it's always the same thing. Go to map a controller button, go to change something. Unless you're a complete Linux expert, it's just not easy or intuitive at all. So being able to drop this in and having all of your controls pre-configured and everything, that's so cool. So Tito did an awesome job highlighting it. I'll stop talking about it and just tell you, if you're even remotely interested, at least check out the video and see if this is something you'd be interested in. But I think this is going to be a fun one, especially if you end up having like a PSP with a dead screen or a dead motherboard. Now you have a really cool way to reuse that shell. But at the same time, if you ever wanted to repair it, you could do that. No problem. A new version of the Revenge of Shinobi soundtrack has just been released on vinyl via data discs. It's in stock and ready to ship right now for about 24 euro. And this one's kind of important because the original 2017 release was based on the Mega Drive soundtrack, and that was awesome. No complaints about that whatsoever. However, Yuzo Koshiro, the creator of the amazing music from this soundtrack, found the original NEC PC-88 source files for the audio, as well as a previously unheard bonus track. 
So that's what was made to create this final version of the soundtrack. So if you're an avid collector of this stuff and you already have the 2017 version, you're probably going to want this one too, just to see the differences and just to have it because stuff like this is really cool. And at the very least, if you're just uh, not so into vinyl, but think this is a cool story, please check out Crystal's post for more info. But I just, I thought this was a really neat story and uh, I'm really happy that I get to share this with everybody because I bet you there's a bunch of Revenge of Shinobi fans that would love to hear the difference and maybe you didn't pick up the original. So now here's the perfect opportunity to pick up this one. I recently posted an interview with tech writer and journalist Sam Moscovich, and this one was an absolute blast. We went all the way back to 1996, where he started out being a kid doing tech reviews of, of different games that he was able to get. And really, Sam was just a wealth of knowledge of things going on behind the scenes, the, the gaming world, um, journalism, and I, I had such a blast talking to him. And I, I think that this is one of those podcasts that would be that anybody who listens to this would enjoy. And one of the hardest things that for me personally, when I try to promote the interviews that I do, is to let you know who they're for. Because I like to make sure that I, I do my best to not waste anybody's time. So even at risk of being insulting, sometimes I'll come right out and be like, this one was for tech nerds only. Don't, you know, don't be bored if you don't like this stuff. And you know, this one's going to be all about heavy metal. So if you don't like it, don't listen to this. Like I try to always just be blunt because I don't want anybody to be like, oh, Bob recommended another crap thing again. But this is one of the few that I think that the stuff that Sam had to say really ties into a lot of the stuff that we might be reading or seeing in, in tech uh, tech writing and video game journalism. And this was just a lot of fun. And after it was all over, I asked Sam if we could uh, do this again, but focus maybe on one topic, because I loved just winding him up and letting him go and listening to him talk about this stuff. So I'd love to have a focus of like, maybe the next time something comes up that I think he'd be a really good person to bring a wealth of knowledge to, I'll just do one just on that subject. And and just let him go off on it. But this was a blast. I really hope that you all give it a listen. And uh, as always, these long-form podcasts are available everywhere. And while, yes, it's nice to see high YouTube clicks, the reality is I don't care. And I mean that with the love and respect, that all the love and respect I could give. Any way that's easy for you to listen is the right way. Any of the audio-only podcast services, downloading the MP3 directly from the page that I linked, YouTube, whatever, doesn't matter. Just give this one a shot. I think you would enjoy it. However you listen is cool. And, uh, you know, thanks to Sam for doing this. This was a blast, and you'll definitely be seeing them again. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to skim through these and add my thoughts where necessary, but if you want more details and visual examples, please check out Lou's video. This week, though, I'm going to start out with just my own very polite uh, PSA about Mr. Software. Um, this has nothing to do with Lou, so if you get mad at me, blame me, not Lou, but I just want to politely remind everybody that all publicly released Mr. Cores are completely free. Not once has any dev charged for a public core, at least that I know about. And I think there was a bit of confusion about this this week or last week or something. And I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was anything malicious, but it did accidentally let some misinformation out there. So I just wanted to politely remind everybody, if the core is public, so far, it's all been free. Nobody has charged for it. Now, a bunch of devs do have Patreons, and a bunch of devs release beta files to Patreons only, and it is my very strong personal opinion that I love this idea. Number one, above anything else, any nerd who's listening, who's done beta testing before, knows that when you release beta stuff and it gets out to the public, 
you get a lot of bug bug fix requests in the wrong places, in the wrong format, and about stuff that might not matter in the moment. So having a curated group of phantoms that are in this to either just support you and not even try the betas or actually dig in and try them, but have a, having a curated group of fans that really just want to test your stuff and want to work with you and get on the right Discord servers or just right through Patreon or whatever, that is so much better than just releasing beta stuff to the public and getting overwhelmed with support requests and bugs that you already know about. So that alone, I think, is worth putting the, like so many people like to use the word paywall, that I'm 100% behind that. But also, all of the stuff takes time and money to create. So having an incentive for people to join early, I also think is a really good thing. I don't think it's a negative thing. I would not call that a paywall, even though absolutely is if you you know if you want to call it like that but i just i'm a big fan of this stuff because i think everybody wins but everybody also gets the cores for free at the end just by running your favorite updater so i just wanted to take a moment or two to, to make sure i drove that point home you're absolutely welcome to disagree with me about the patreon beta thing everyone's welcome to have their own opinions um but i just i wanted to make sure the point was out there that nobody is saying oh i just came up with this amazing core but you're going to spend five dollars or else you're not going to be able to use it like that's it's not ever been a thing with mister that's not at all in the spirit of that project and uh, i just wanted to make that very clear and thought this was the perfect opportunity to do so but anyway let's move on to lose updates First, the Mars FPGA project will be shown off to the public at the Free Play, for, uh, Free Play Florida Expo in Tampa on November 17th to 19th. I'm going to try like hell to get there. I don't really have the time or budget to get there, but I'm going to see if I could pull some strings and make something happen. Uh, selfishly, I want to see it in person, but I also would love to go there. And even if it's just videos of, uh, with my cell phone, just sitting there playing it, showing you how it works... I really like to, when projects are real, I like to highlight them and get them out there. Everybody who's listening to this has been burned at least once in the past 10 years from a project that turned out to be fake or turned out to not be at all what they explained it to be. So uh, I know the Mars project's real and I just want to show that. So I would love to go out and see. I'm not sure if they're going to release it with as uh, extensive stuff as they want to, but at the very least, it's a real thing. So... Uh, next up, there's a bunch more updates to the N64 core, including Colors and Fog and Beetle Adventure Racing that's fixed, texture issues in Top Gear Rally, and some wrestling games are resolved, and now it uses the correct video and audio frequency for both PAL and NTSC. I uh, got a chance to try that N64 core the other day, and I was just super impressed. Robert's done an amazing job, so it's a perfect example. He and Hotego are two developers that are really putting so much effort into this, and even if you're not into beta updates, you know, consider supporting any of the Mr. Devs that, that you follow that do have Patreons. Next up, uh, speaking of Hotego, a beta of the Splatterhouse core is now available for subscribers. Um, if you're a subscriber, you just, wherever that new email came through, or if you have your emails disabled like I do, just go to their Patreon page and download the latest uh beta uh, zip file that you add in order to unlock it. Uh, and as always, like I just word vomited about, Splatterhouse will be available to the public once it's done. Next up, uh, Uber Yoji just released a boot ROM for the Game Boy Advance core. And I'm a really big fan of this stuff. Uh, basically, when you load, you know, sorry if there's spoilers here, but uh, the video is shown on Twitter. So uh, if you boot up the core, almost every core, you get a black screen in the background. Sometimes if you... Uh, 
disable the menu before you load a game, you just get a black screen. And Uber Yoji was able to make it so that there's a nice animation behind it. And I think this is a big deal for streamers and just for people that like fun stuff on there. So uh, if you want to try that out, you're able to, but I would love to see more of the stuff integrated into the main mister. And when I say that, I literally just mean I would love to see it. I don't know what technical limitations there are. I don't know if updating stuff like this would take up too much space or remove the ability to do something else. I'm just saying it would be really neat to have a, a, you know something that feels a little more like a GUI and a little less like a science project. Uh, next, the Ypsilon has a really awesome public Patreon post about all of the contributions they've made. And I love the post because it was a very... It was a very nerdy way of just saying, here's all the stuff I've been working on in a non-bragging, you know, non-selfish way. Just, uh, I wish I had the skill. I am the worst at self-promotion. There's still a whole bunch of people that think all I do is copy and paste articles and don't actually do anything behind the scenes. I wish I had the ability to write such a good post like this. And I really think that even if you're not able to support the Ypsilon on Patreon, it's a publicly viewable post. So just kind of scroll through because not only would you probably get a renewed appreciation for all of the things that Jose does, but you also might not know about some of these other things. So definitely check it out. I think it's uh, it, it's just cool to get this info out there and to show all of the things that go on behind the scenes. Um, and lastly, Attract17 posted that thanks to Mr. Mr. X sharing some source code, games based on the Pac-Land and Dragon Buster hardware will be coming to FPGA platforms pretty soon, including the Mr. So that's it for this week. Uh, as always, please subscribe to Lou. Uh, I would not be able to keep up with all this stuff without him, and it's really awesome to have all of this Mr. Info just very nicely tied up in one video. Uh, you could just listen or watch and kind of get all this info in one place. So thanks again, Lou. Always appreciate you. So last week, I talked about a post from Dan Mons that highlighted the differences between D65 and D93 color. And we talked a little bit about how some games designed in Japan on Japanese TVs might actually not look correct on NTSC D95 TVs. And that was awesome. I really appreciated the post. But Dan went another step further and created some gamma correction files for any Mr. users that allow you to try this in real time. And this is a huge game changer, because if you're a Mr. user, you could basically just load up this gamma file and start testing it on different games. And Dan also posted some, uh, some animated GIFs here so you could see the differences between some of these. But this was really cool for me to try out. And one of the things that that kind of made me smile a lot is I downloaded, I always use Kitrink's color palette for the NES. That one had a lot of work uh, that was really dug deep into trying to get the most accurate color representation for the NES. And when I loaded up the D95 patch, or the, I'm sorry, the D93, suddenly Mario's blue sky is blue and everything kind of looked the way that I preferred. So it was, it was interesting to see that. But games like Zelda Link to the Past and Super Metroid, I thought looked absolutely stunning in D93. And funny enough, games like Sonic the Hedgehog, I didn't. So it's kind of, it makes you think like what TVs were these designed on? Um, what, what market did they have in mind? Did they have the different color differences in the back of their heads or did they just fire up a TV and start working on it and kind of go from there? It's pretty awesome, but you're able to check this out for yourself now. And also Extrems added this option for Game Boy interface, which is very cool. Uh, I'm not sure how that would apply to the LCD screen that was in the Game Boy Advance, but 
either way, it doesn't matter. This is a free thing that you're able to try out if you have the ability to use Mr. or GBI. And Dan posted a, a ton of information, um, some examples, some explanations. And there's also a few different files that you could download. Uh, there's the main just D93 file, but there's also ones that are less of a percentage difference. And you might find that some games that maybe weren't designed to be used in D93 or clipping a little bit, or maybe it's like Sonic where it's too stark of a difference. So you have all of these things available to you now. So at the very least, I strongly recommend checking out Dan's post where you can see the animated GIFs go back and forth between the color differences. Um, and, you know, it's up to you, right? There's no right answer for this. It's whatever your eyes prefer. But I think a lot of people with the ability to, to switch between these might start playing some games in D93 color because it's just, I don't know, it was such a, a huge difference for some stuff. And, you know, it's all subjective, right? You can look at this and say, these look the same. I'm colorblind. I can't tell the difference. And that's also completely fair as well. So at the very least, scroll through this post, check out all of these amazing examples and really see for yourself what you think. Retro Fighters have just opened pre-orders on a one-time run of gold Bluetooth Brawler 64 controllers. These should be compatible with Nintendo Switch Online, as well as PC, Mr., and other Bluetooth-compatible devices, although I haven't confirmed or checked yet. I ordered uh, some from, uh, to test. The price is $45 and is due to ship in about two months, or you can get the gray editions of these right now. I have links to Stone Age Gamer and Rondo that both have them in stock. And this is really cool. It's the same shape as your average Retro Fighters controller. However, the front buttons are laid out just like the N64's buttons. So if you're someone like me that never found the N64 controller to be comfortable, but you still wanted to take advantage of those button layouts, you're able to do so with this controller. Um, I think either of these controllers might be a very good choice for the new N64 upcoming Mr. Core. And I bought the gray one to try out. Um, I'm going to be lag testing that. I've also been talking to Retro Fighters, and I think uh, they're going to be set up with a lag testing kit so they could publish their own results as well, which is awesome because we really need companies to jump on board. And even if they're not the fastest controllers, it's my strong opinion that that's okay too, as long as we know. All right, this controller is only $45 or $35 for the gray one. I could use it for casual use, but if I'm going to play Smash, I'm going to plug in a wired controller. There's a lot of people that would agree with me on that, especially especially if wireless is that much more convenient, but we need to know. So I think that's going to be something that, you know, hopefully when I get it, I'll be able to test. Uh, I'll test myself, plus I'll hopefully be able to get them a kit so they could post their own results. I'll do a quick follow-up post as soon as I get mine. And also I heard complaints that the batteries drain pretty quick on these. To be honest, I didn't know the uh, Bluetooth Nintendo Switch Online version of these controllers existed. I completely missed that. It's my fault. I'm so sorry. So I, I bought the gray one that's in stock. I'll do all of these tests on it soon and see. I'm not an N64 expert, so I can give you the hard data, but I might send this over to somebody like Mark from My Life in Gaming to test because he's definitely more of a, a Nintendo 64 fan. But either way, um, if you want a limited edition, 2000 made only, and then supposedly they're never making them again, then pick this one up now, cross your fingers, and hope that it performs well. Well, that's it for this time. 
As always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially, and once again, thank you to everybody who supports in any way, because it really is you who's keeping all of this stuff going. And it's not just the weekly podcast. It's all the dev work I do with so many people behind the scenes. It's all the testing stuff. And none of it would be possible without you. And I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it all. So I'm still going to keep trying my absolute best to do everything I possibly can. Uh, I'm only one person, uh, and I've stretched my thin a couple too many times in the past. So I'm trying to find some kind of balance, but I'm still just pushing as hard as I can pedal to the metal and going to try to get you as much cool stuff as possible. So thank you all so much. And I will see you next week. <laughs>